Howdy, Riffers. This is David Sanchez. This is episode 43 of the Riffs or Die podcast. And on this one, we've got a special Swapcast. Did a Swapcast with Mr. Doc Coyle from the band Bad Wolves and of God Forbid fame. He also is the host of the X-Man podcast. And I had a great time doing a little Swaparoo with him. We dove into some interesting topics that I think you guys will find interesting being fans of this show. As always, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to riffsordie.com, pick up some merch. You can also go to patreon.com slash riffsordie and sign up as a Patreon member. Don't forget, you can always email me at podcast at riffsordie.com and make sure to follow me on social media and YouTube. This conversation was a beautiful display of hearing from other perspectives. When we hear things from other perspectives, we learn. Learning is good. Don't you think? I do. I like learning. Now make sure you stick around until the very end because Doc drops some wisdom that I ask of most guests. Give me a message to future generations. What do you want to tell them? After the interview, he sent me a voice recording of his message to the future. So make sure you stick around until the end to get that little nugget of wisdom. Not much more I need to say about this. Let's dive into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Doc Coyle. What's going on, brother? Not much. Happy to be here. Yeah, likewise, man. I really appreciate you uh, reaching out to me. You know, it's uh, you know, it's obviously a strange time where we don't get to see each other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we're like we're used to. Um, but yeah, this will be you know the first time I've done a kind of cross podcasting where we where we both record it and then we both release it. This is like a it's a fresh it's a fresh vibe. You know, I'm so used to being in the interviewer's chair. So now it's, it's like, we're, I, I don't even know how we, how we figure this out, but we, I think, but I think it's, it's, it's going to be cool. Cause it's like, I have some of the responsibility, but not all the responsibility. So I feel yeah, like- yeah. 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 I, I, I just want to chat. Um, <clears throat> I, I've got some questions I'd like to ask you. I'm sure you've got a couple of questions for me, but I like doing the swap cast, scratch each other's back and uh, everybody wins. Yeah. I mean, so I was just kind of like perusing some, some of your shows and it seems like you do a, a good portion of your shows. It's just you, right? Kind of just going off the cuff or hitting hitting topics. Yeah, part of the reason I called the podcast Riffs or Dies because it's just me riffing on ideas half of the time. Yeah. No, and it, obviously, riffs. I love riffs. Well, the thing is, but keep in mind, a lot of people can't really do that. Yeah, you, you know, That's kind of a unique talent, even in the the podcasting radio sphere of just broadcasting sphere of people who can just talk. (laughs) Not everyone has that ability. Yeah. I had to learn that skill. It's definitely taken some time to hone in on that. And I've gotten better with time. I'm still not perfect at it, but it's, uh, it's harder than it appears when you listen to people like Bill Burr or uh, other podcasters that just talk to themselves like crazy people. Well, they, he has a little advantage being a standup comedian. It's his, it's just talking is his, his profession. So he, yeah, he's well practiced. So what, why did you, why did you decide to start a podcast? Um, you know, COVID happened 
it's something that I had wanted to do. I had thought about doing a podcast for a long time because I have a lot of ideas that I can expand on that I write into lyrics and Havoc songs. But I feel like a lot of the ideas that I write about in songs can definitely be elaborated on um, into a conversational topic or something to rant about like a crazy person, <laughs> which I do often. But uh, <clears throat> it's something I wanted to do for a long time. And then COVID hit all my tours, you know, uh, evaporated. And it gave me a good excuse to finally get the thing off the ground. Yeah. The, listen, I'm, before COVID, you know, the, the rockers and podcast island was a pretty small island. Now it's a big, it's, we've expanded the island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think podcasts, more and more people are listening to them. Yeah. And I think naturally more and more of them will pop up. But I think it's good because it's a, a great way in many cases to get outside of of uh, censorship and and there's no like FCC rules. We can say fuck, piss, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits all we want. And uh, it's just a cool, unfiltered way to have a conversation. I know that this has been talked about ad nauseum by guys like Joe Rogan, but you can have a long form conversation with no, hey, we got to cut to commercial break. There's none of that kind of filtration going on. So uh, I think it's a cool... It's a cool new, new way to produce and, and consume media. It's like talk radio, but with people that you actually already had heard of and are already a fan of, you know, not just some like square and a tie who has a law degree talking to, uh, on the airwaves. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely kind of, in my opinion, a bit of a, a cross-section between the podcasting realm, the streaming realm right people who do live streams and and people on twitch and things like that essentially just creating our own little avenues into our interests our personalities uh issues we we want to talk about and it's and it's so, so so to me it's like not this surprise that it's expanding because it's it's to some degree people want to like say hey this is what i'm about here's my shit right maybe that it, it may be 10 years ago that was a blog but now sure. ended in in into this kind of thing, you know. And there's a Truman Show kind of element to it. Whether that's the type of people who engage with social media in a way where nothing they do is is essentially private, right? Their whole life is, hey, I'm over here. I'm doing I'm I'm doing this or streaming and stuff. So I, I listen. I it's no surprise to me that it's I I look at it as just a extension of expression, right? Like I don't know if it's necessarily art but it's certainly expression. <laughs> yeah. It's borderline art. I mean, the way it can be, like you, yeah. Like the way you were talking about stand-up comedians, they're very art artful. And, and, uh, the way that they are able to transfer an idea from their brain into someone else's brain often is very masterful, especially when you're talking about the greats of stand-up, like George Carlin or Bill Burr, Joe Rogan. I, I think, uh, I think a lot of the greatest stand-ups ever are still alive right now. And it's really cool that some of them have podcasts and you can uh, get a better understanding of how their brain works off of the stage, which is something that before the internet, there was mystique to artists and you didn't know what they were like off stage other than in the seldom interviews you would see or listen to. 
now with social media and stuff, a lot of that mystique is kind of gone. That veil of mystery has been lifted in a lot of ways. Yeah. I listen, I'm, I hear that. I think there's positives and negatives to that, right? Like, sure. Slayer, for example, like they never did that Slayer documentary. They were always, you know, otherworldly figures, you know, um, tool, right? You, they're still, I mean, we kind of have an idea, you know, like uh, Maynard will go on Rogan or something and kind of talk about stuff. But, but that's, I like the bands where that still exists to some degree, like Ghost or something, you know, it's, it's still pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's got like an old, uh, vintage feeling to it <laughs> so um outside of just just the the podcast realm i mean music wise i mean how is uh i really enjoyed the last album by the way i was just i was actually just listening to it five yeah. or v. i don't know if v like the tv show from the <laughs> yeah it's in it's intentionally ambiguous so people can call it v or five yeah um but it, i guess it came out like Maybe not, it was not at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's not like you pr- got really to do a full touring cycle to really promote the record and kind of everything. I mean, was that pretty underwhelming? I mean, what's the, what's the, did the guy, you guys do a new record during the break or like what's going on? Well, V came out on May 1st, 2020. So right in the middle of lockdowns. So it was. So you know what? I got all skewed around because I heard the record at Mark Lewis's place while I was still on tour. So I guess in my mind, it came out before the... Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. And you guys have worked with Mark as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God forbid worked with Mark. Uh, Battles worked with Mark. Sweet. Hell yeah. Uh, he's got a great ear. I learned a lot of good little tricks from, uh, from Mark and, and we laughed a lot. And, uh, but anyway, with V, it came out May 1st, 2020, right in the middle of pandemic. And we were supposed to hit the road with Hatebreed that day and do a, a couple weeks and then do another tour immediately after and then do festivals in Europe right after that. And all of that stuff got wiped away naturally. And, uh, you know, when the pandemic lockdowns started in March of 2020, we were asked, like, okay, we can still just stick with the May 1st release date or we push it back. And then there's a big question mark on it. And it might come out in the fall. It might come out in 2021. It might come out in 2022. So because there was that big question mark on it and it was basically explained to us, either it comes out on the date we already had planned on or we don't know when, when it comes out. And all of us were like, all right, well, Let's just put it out when it was supposed to. I mean, do, do you feel it took a hit or it got the attention? Because I think to some degree, some albums almost got more attention because there was less albums out. Less albums out and people had free time. Yeah. People had time to go and check it out. So um, since it came out, our numbers have gone up and they, they've been steady. It's not like they just spiked right when the album came out and then they dipped again our numbers have have been better ever since so i I think it was a good move to put it out and if anything it's just going to make people more foaming at the mouth to see us live and play those songs when we finally do get to go out and play do you have uh are you guys like prepared to go out or is it 2022 what's what's the deal i'm not sure yet but i think 2022 is probably a safer bet what about you guys uh Essentially, Bad Wolves right now isn't 
we're putting out a record, but we're not playing right now. So there's things, legal things have to be worked out. <laughs> oh, okay. So we, we thought we were going to be able to do some stuff. We had some stuff booked, but it, we had to kind of put it on the, put it on the shelf temporarily until some things got worked out. But I'm, I'm kind of okay with it, even though I'm like, I'm definitely ready to play just because I'm just bored. I want to, I want to go out. Yeah. You know, I miss the action. <laughs> I need sure. action. Uh, yeah. but it's more about, uh, even if we're not touring, at least I, th- that way I can work on other things. I've, you know, my foot in hand in a lot of different projects. So it's like in some, to some degree to be able to put a record out, promote it and then work on other stuff. It might be the best of both worlds and we'll see, we'll see, but you know, definitely be nice to, you know, make a living on the road. That would help. Now I got to figure things out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel you. Definitely. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> so I was listening to your records, uh, again this week and the leads on the records are really, really sick. Is that you on all of them? Um, for bad wolves? Yeah. It depends on the song. Um, on the last record nation, Chris, our other guitar player really stepped up as kind of a co-lead guitar player. So, so on that record, we, we kind of split them up. And then the first record, I did a couple, so it really depends on on the track, and and there's even some other songs where we might work with some other songwriters where someone else just happened to play the lead. So it depends on the song. But Chris is sick. He's a he is a really really good guitar player, and uh, and on the new record that's yet to release, I did twice three times made solos on the other records. I guess maybe the songs are a little more uh, metallic oriented. I don't know, but it just it just it just turned out. So sometimes it's who's ever vibing something. And I, and I, I forget what happened in the last record, but there was a couple of leads where uh, John, our, our drummer who writes a lot of songs was, he was, he just gave this, he gave the leads to, to Chris. And I was a little bummed out when I found out. And then when I heard what he did, I was like, eh, yeah, yeah, he, he killed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good feeling. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's been a real ev- evolution with me uh, with lead guitar because in god forbid i was you know the de facto lead guitar player because just i just gravitated more towards that and i expressed myself that way and my brother would do a lead here or there um some of the early records but then he kind of tended to veer away from it and then on the last record we had matt wickland join the band and he's an incredible lead guitar player so then he probably did a little more solos than i did on the last record so i've always been this thing of like I can play lead and I enjoy it, but it's this thing where I'm almost every time it's time to make a new solo. I feel like I don't know how to write a solo. Like (laughs) it's because it's, it's so hard, right. To do something fresh or feel like it hasn't been done. If you're using similar chord progressions or similar, it's, you know, it's, it's very hard to reinvent the wheel and not feel like you're just um, rehashing things. And I always want it to, feel fresh or I just wanted to feel like I'm doing something new or doing something exciting, you know, and that's, you know, instead of just being uh, on a hamster wheel. Yeah. You get like uh, option paralysis <clears throat> sometimes, especially when writing a brand new solo, like it's a totally open slate. You can do anything. And I, I can understand uh, how it's sometimes difficult to get something going. One of the tricks that I learned a long time ago and I've put it into practice a few times and it worked out really well is um, George Benson, the mm-hmm. amazing jazz guitar player. 
he said that with his solos, he almost never starts it with the root note. And I've done that a few times and it yielded some really cool results. Like, because then the beginning of your solo doesn't sound normal. You know, there's unexpected notes going on. So sometimes I'll start it on a third or a fifth or, you know, just some note that's not the root can, can yield some good stuff. Yeah. I've been doing, you know, cause I, back in the day, it's like, I'd, I'd, I'd write a solo of my own on a four track or get an idea down and then go into a studio and, and track it. And it kind of, and sometimes work out, sometimes it wouldn't, but lately I've basically just been doing all my solos at home so I can really take my time with them. And sure. I've been experimenting with just improving and just getting 20 different takes or something and then just cutting it together and and like, and then you put it together and it becomes almost way cooler than anything you could have planned. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've, been, we've done similar stuff to that. You know, so it's, 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 it's an evolution and, and I'm also a lot more, I think free minded now than I was in, in terms of just I, operating with less fear operating with uh, being kind of more comfortable with who I am as a player and not trying to like keep up with the Joneses in terms of technicality or showing off and, and having to be a little bit more about feel and vibe and emotion. And, you know, because I, I just think at some point the technical level of some of these players now are so high, you really can't compete with them on those, on that terminology, right? So right. Mm -hmm. Let me just do the coolest thing I can do. Let me do what's what fits my personality as opposed to trying to be as fast as this person or or fit in as many techniques as as this person. And at a certain point, like you're the way you emote as a player is just kind of gonna represent itself. Yeah, and melody goes a long way. Where where, uh, <clears throat> where some players lack in technicality, they make up for it in melody and, and melodic phrasing. And I mean it might be harder to play something that's technically blistering, but the thing that's going to get stuck in someone's head is the simple melodic stuff. Yeah. And then of course it's always great. We can kind of do both, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the Holy grail. <laughs> yeah. That's you know, a lot of my favorite players, be it Marty Friedman or Friedman's Randy, the best Randy Rhodes. Um, they never lost the hook. They never lost the melody. And they also knew how to kind of turn up, the the uh, adrenaline on it and and do something technically interesting and captivating because ultimately it's not what's happening it's like how does it sound right does yeah it, does it sound cool is it is it you know so yeah it's it's you know and me, me too as a, as a player you know coming from a more extreme metal background I've spent years unlearning things I learned you know and and getting more into you know, like in like the 2010s, I started getting really more into hard rock and rock music in general and realized I was this, I was good at what I did as, you know, kind of almost a thrash metal based metal guitar player, but it was, I was limited, you know, and I was like, I need to like get out of my, my comfort zone, you know, and kind of, okay, what, why can this player over here just play a few notes and it sounds so great. And right. I feel like I need to compensate and fill up that space with noise, you know? So it's, so it's kind of like, and that's why on the new battles record, there's a handful of solos that are extremely simple, 
but it took me a long time just to get there to kind of declutter and go, okay, it doesn't need all that. It's actually distracting. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, and, and sometimes you don't realize that unless you listen back to it. Like you were saying, you're doing solos at home and you have a little more time to, to work out the kinks. I find on some of our records, um, you know, at the, at the time it was tracked, I was like, Oh, cool. And then upon listening back, I'm like, fuck, I should have like made this part a little simpler. It would have been easier to play live. It would have been, uh, you know, release tension on my right picking hand. It would have sounded better and, uh, you know, let the music breathe more. <clears throat> and that's something you don't really get in, until you can take a step back. It's like a, a painter, you know, working on some giant uh, mural. You, you need to take a few steps back and look at the whole thing to see how it's all flowing. Yeah, I also have a lot more different types of guitars now. So I'll try the same solo with four or five different guitars. and, and cool. Or even I'll pick a guitar that's tuned differently. And all of a sudden, it'll make you completely think about where you're going and just the tonality of a particular instrument will bring different things out of you or the way a, a certain guitar plays. And, oh, I'll try it in this pickup or, hey, let me try it with this effect. Let me, you know, sure. really just kind of go nuts with options. And then sometimes when you, you play something eight different ways, at least it tells you what you don't want. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, Absolutely. You know, you start kind of, okay, I think this is, this seems to be working the most. And I've, I've really started, uh, you know, just experimenting with effects, you know, like I w did some stuff with uh, putting a delay um, in front, in the front chain, right? Instead of in the effects loop. And that hits, it hits it completely different. You get a more kind of um, hard, hard delay that feels rhythmic. And so, so just, just little things like, okay, what, let me get a slide out. What, what can I, you know, just trying different things because it's, if you're doing so many of these things, what can you do to make it stand out? What can really just playing with, with Sonics and, and being as, I just want it to be as creative as, as, as possible, you know? You turn into a regular Tom Morello? <laughs> no, I, listen, I've always been, you know, to me, like that's the beauty of the 90s in general with whether it's Morello or the Corn guys. Um, you know, I was really into a lot of kind of spacier, stuff that came out of like the hardcore metalcore scene, like bands like Caven did really amazing things with, with effects and Glassjaw did really cool things with effects. Uh, or even, and people kind of forget dime was always super creative and, and would do things, even though technically he could do just about anything. He would just do strange things sometimes just yeah. the tonality, just like, Oh, what is, look, well, there's that one solo on a, on Great Southern Train Kill, one of the last songs where it almost sounds like a a fiddle or something. I forget which 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 track it is, but he makes it sound like a violin. Like <laughs> you know, just he, he used a lot of like uh, one thing that well, obviously the whammy pedal. He he made every <laughs> metal dude want one of those. But uh, <clears throat> something that I find that he used a lot was like a fast rate chorus or a flanger. Yeah. which you don't hear that much in, in bands like that. Um, and then you heard bands like corn and stuff, making that, that sound really famous, but some of you guys' stuff riff wise and tone wise reminds me a lot of later Pantera. Yeah. I, I called, uh, the, the bad wolf sound, which I did not create. It was really John 
and this guy Max Karen, who you know started the band before I joined, and a lot of the tone, especially the tone of it, was Max, you know, and uh, and he still works on our records. He's kind of like the the sixth member, kind of the George the George Martin of uh of Bad Wolves. I, I called it Gent Terra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like. You you guys' first record, especially, yeah. reminds me like Pantera, Mashuga, Gojira. Yeah, it's a listen. It's a it's a cool sound that you know. I like I said, I I, I don't take credit for it, but it's mm. it's it's fascinating when you're when you start tuning that guitar down, right? Like because you do lose. There's certain things you lose uh, tone wise tuning down in terms of tightness and the way the guitar cuts because uh, traditionally in hard rock and metal the guitar is a mid range instrument. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you tune it down that low it really changes the kind of frequency range that it can exist in, right? And if you tune out, we tune out in G, if you pump too much mid-range in there, sometimes it can sound almost honky. Like it's like, ah, it's like a little, it's just some, It's just not quite as pleasing. So it's this weird idea of, I've, I've noticed uh, the younger generation, kids who grew up on, you know, I don't know how you are, old art, but I'm 40 and me, I the way I perceive metal is coming out of the Megadeths and the Metallicas and things like that. But if you grew up on Slipknot and Korn, your whole relationship with the way a guitar is supposed to sound is different. Way different. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, and I actually think that's a big reason why Bad Wolves kind of translated the way it did was that young, younger people really process these riffs as more of a bass frequency. And, and there's more of a consistency, consistency between that style of metal, hip hop, and electronic music. Yeah. Like this real um, certain type of relationship with low end. And sure. Group, right. And, and, and that kind of is like the dividing line between a an quote unquote old school sound and a modern sound. So it's so just for me, I had to learn the Bad Wolf style. Right. Like, like it's a, it, it's a vibe. It's a certain type of, of right hand technique with muting and kind of being, you know, being able to control these much bigger strings. Like I use like a, a 70 gauge on like my low. Holy <laughs> oh my God. Is this a seven string? Yeah. So, okay. but we're basically, uh, we're one, we're a half note off of, being what would be an eight string. If you, if you've got an eight string in standard tuning, I believe the low note is an F sharp. So Just we're all, tune it up a half step. Yeah. So we're almost an eight string range, but using a, a seven string, but you know, so it's, you know, it's a, like I said, it's been an education. <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine. I always have a hard time playing seven strings. Um, I just, I've only messed around with them. I've never like had one to actually play on. And man, it fucks me up having that extra string down there. Different. It's really is a different instrument um, because there's a whole series of techniques that work. There's certain types of, you could have a riff, right? That you play on a six string and certain tuning and then you transpose that. And all of a sudden it becomes a different thing. It's just, it, it's, um, and I think it's kind of cool. Like I, like I, I don't have an eight string, and I'm kind of, because I think a lot of the ideas around some of this stuff is expanding on heaviness, right? Like really exploring, okay, what is heavy and how can we push that? And in the, in the kind of almost sports-like competition way, 
I think metal musicians approach this, I think think it hit a point of diminishing returns. Like I'm sure you've heard this where some bands, they tune so low, now it actually doesn't sound heavy anymore. <laughs> My ears. <laughs> uh, like it's something like it, because it loses punch. It loses impact, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. I totally get that. Like it was like with Meshuggah where they were using seven strings and it was very uh, palm mute, kind of you know uh syncopated picking orient yeah. and once they started using eight strings they almost stopped doing that because it doesn't sound good it sounds flubby so it, it went to a lot of these more open note single note do, 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 you know because that was a way of using the power of those notes to make it actually sound heavy you know sure. so I, I wonder what uh it, it's kyle right bass player yeah, so I was hanging out with him. He was playing for Devin Townsend on the 70,000 Tons of Metal cruise. And I met him out there. Um, do you have any idea off the top of your head how fat his bottom bass string is? He was, he was telling me it's something like a 170 or something. Holy good I God. Be, I could be wrong about that. It's something really, really heavy. But he's been playing you know, extended range guitars, bass guitars for a long time. The band... He was in previously Scar the Martyr, which changed the name to Vimic, was using eight strings for some mm-hmm. of their songs. So he was even lower than we are now. <laughs> uh, so, and, and it really is a, a process of figuring out what works. And he's a super gearhead. Every week he has a new pedal or a new bass that he's trying out to, to just figure out how to make it sound good in that range. And, and that's something I have to say about, about the band is we put a, a lot of time uh, into our rigs over the years of tr- constantly trying to work around the edges to get it to sound better. Cause it is, it, like I said, it's especially in live arenas when you're tuning low, you take low tuning plus speed plus distortion. Yeah. The recipe basically to sound bad <laughs> in. Yeah especially when you're playing, you know, like a, a big arena or something with a lot of um, reverb, you know, natural reverb in a, in a room. So, and I think we, we did a, a very good job of constantly trying to just improve it, get more clarity, get more. Um, so you can hear the picking attack. You can hear the intricacies of, of what we're doing. And a lot of that too is also uh, developing your m- music so you can hear a lot of that stuff. And I'm sure you've been in this with some sure. songs that are so technical, the details are lost live. And you realize, you know what? Sometimes simplicity works the best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to like fast details, I feel like drums come across well live, but guitars get lost really easily especially distorted guitars. And I think that's part of the reason Gojira is so sick live because a lot of the drums are fast and, and uh, kind of all over the place and the guitars are fairly simple and heavy. And that shit always just translates so perfectly live. And, and talking about making the band sound better, um, I've always looked at it like this. If everybody in the band tweaks their gear or, or gets the right gear to make you know, the, the symbols, you get a different symbol. It makes your symbols sound 5% better. Try a different drum head. It makes your drum sound 5% better. All of those little tiny 5% all around throughout the whole entire band makes a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, even 5% is, 
a dramatic change. If you had something that sounded 5% better, that's a massive improvement. That's miles. And, and I, so I think if you're starting with something that's already good, it's even more incremental than that. But every, yeah. every little bit, and uh, it's something you, co- you constantly have to be working on, I think, in every aspect of your performance, right? Whether yeah. your stage presence or your light show or the, you know, the way you transition from one song to the other, uh, just every, everything like, you know, me, and this is so, as someone who like you has had the good fortune to tour with incredible bands that have had long careers. And you, I try and study every day and see, man, what does this band do? Great. What is, Oh, what are they doing? And, it's, and you just try and learn. And, and cause you, to be at that level, you really have to push, you know, push, push where you're at and, and keep improving. Yeah, one little degree of variation makes a huge difference. Like on a big journey with a boat, you know? Yeah. You start off going one degree the wrong direction. You're going to wind up way off course, constantly redirecting it towards the uh, the, the shared goal. I, I, I wanted to ask you this, because some of the lyrics in Bad Wolf songs and some of the lyrics in God Forbid songs um, remind me of topics that I sing about in Havoc. Do you have anything to do with the lyrics? Uh, I mean, it depends which song. I mean, Bad Wolves and tri- like it. It's really like I was. I'm not a massive contributor, so it really depends which song. Um, but I think more of the politically minded stuff in Bad Wolves is definitely Tommy. Um, and God forbid was you know like antihero. I co-wrote songs like Crucifier Police. I mean, God forbid back to back records were essentially anti-war records you know um you know we were really kind of speaking our mind about you know the conflict that was going on uh, you know we're talking 2004 2005 and i it's still going on <laughs> yeah um you know so and, and so i've been so- someone that's always been very politically and socially engaged and um you know with and with bad wolves like i said it was a situation where i think some of the stuff was it wasn't super overt, you know? Um, and obviously Tommy's kind of gone in some other direction that is complete opposite of, of, of where I'm at. Um, but the funny thing is like with God forbid, I mean, if you were to talk to each of us about our particular political views, it was a spectrum, right? It wasn't just everyone believed one thing. Um, and I think that's great. You know, like, I think it's perfectly fine to have a, you know, especially in an, in a environment where everyone can talk about what they think and actually talk with each other. Right. And actually, Hey, I think this and, Oh, you know, and you, you talk about things and actually, and you don't walk away with it, like pissed off at somebody, even if you have different viewpoints. Um, and I think that's really something that's been lost in many, in, in, in many ways, our ability to kind of discuss these things in a way that's respectful Yeah. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that it's not in person. And then, you know, you see today we have all of this really divisive, crazy shit going on in our, I mean, the whole whole world, but let's just say in the U S where we live. Um, I find it very interesting that, that now things are so polarized and polarizing. And at the same time, you know, the powers that be have kept people separated and, made it so they're not allowed to meet up in the bar to talk about these things. So they're not allowed to meet up in a restaurant or to go in the park 
And uh, things are opening up slowly um, today, but, you know, during the beginning of this, no one could meet up in person and have a conversation about stuff like this. It's only online. And online, a lot of people get really brave behind a keyboard and say shit that they would never say to a person to their face. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I think so, to some degree that's true. Um, I think I think if you you've seen, I, you know, people have been acting the fool now that things are starting to open up. So I, and you you see some of the confrontations between like you know maybe a what a white nationalist group and 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 a far left anti type group and they're fighting they're saying crazy things. I think people are pretty bold in person actually now. <laughs> so I I think it's more about you know online spaces. And how people interact there is more about uh, echo chambers, right? Primarily surrounding themselves with people that already agree with them. Uh, and I think most, a lot of, most people are kind of gu- guilty of this. Um, but I think it's more about media diet. And, and, I, and you use a word like divisiveness. I think... A, I think probably half the people that actually care about this stuff or talk about it don't care about, they don't regard divisiveness as being a bad thing, one. And the people that do regard it as a bad thing don't actually realize how they're culpable in creating more divisiveness. Uh, So it's, it's, it's it's a kind of, and to me, that's the number one issue more than anything. But for most people, that's not their number one issue. Their issue is whatever, you know, some people, it's wokeness. I got to stop wokeness. That's my number one issue. Some people, it's, I got to stop white supremacy. That's my number one issue. Some people, it's the environment. Some people, it's voting rights. Whatever, someone's something, someone that, something that galvanizes everything. Uh, it's it's interesting. Like uh, I was listening to your record, and like you had a lyric. You were saying like the enemy is is not overseas. Basically, the enemy, the enemy is not coming from overseas. Yeah, yeah, but like that's something. That idea, I think most people that are especially partisan uh, figures, which is probably half or more more people that are that care about politics, they agree with you. But that's not a good thing. That's how civil wars happen. Is by thinking that your your fellow countrymen or your enemy yeah. is a fundamentally scary place to be. Yeah, for sure. And this is where I was talking about, uh, you know the divisiveness uh, of, of uh, our, our situation right now. It's that people are divided against one another. It's the old ancient tactic of divide and conquer. Uh, it seems like the people that are pulling the levers of power in our society have, have pitted neighbor against neighbor so that we don't all get along on some core issues that supersede the small things that divide us. Because if we were to get together on core issues with people who are, you know, our political opponents or whatever, the way people look at it, uh, the game would be over for the people that are running the show really quickly. So you, you use these terms, you know, like people in power. Mm-hmm. So who are these people that you're talking about? Well, I mean, there's the big, as Carlin said, the big wealthy business interests that own all the important land, the, the people that fund education, people that fund the, the medical uh, education and medical industry, um, the people that run the newsrooms, 
the people that profiteer off of illegal wars, you know, these are the people that I would consider the they that I'm talking about, the people that are really making the decisions. Well, so I'm a huge Carlin guy myself, um, really helped shape, shape my philosophy. Yeah, but same. Find the, fact, the fact that Carlin is dead and no longer here to kind of speak for himself, sometimes I feel like his philosophies decontextualized from his era do not really speak to the unique nature of this time. Um, and I think presuming to know how he would necessarily think about this time, I think it's a little presumptuous, presuming presumptuous, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, but um, I, you know, I think we have so much confusion about this stuff. And I, and, 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 you know, like I've, I've gone from, I've existed in a lot of different uh, paradigms, right? Like understanding the world a certain way, right? Like I think I was the I was the guy after nine eleven wa- watching those like uh, loose change videos, right? And discovering, you know, that was like kind of the burgeoning of a guy like Alex Jones. And over over the years, I've I've gone much more in, in the in the opposite direction um, because I think, unfortunately, you know, when we get into the idea of they, right? it tends to connect dots that aren't necessarily connected and that power money and power have always had money and power, right? There's no difference now, like, like b- between people that are able to kind of be at the tops of these things, but things are not quite in, in, in many ways, things are way less centralized than they used to be. Right. So at the time Carl was talking about this stuff in the eighties, there was like three networks and it was like two cable news channels, but now there's, there really isn't, anything as centralized information, right? Because everyone goes to their own silo and, and says, well, I'm just going to listen to Ben Shapiro. He's going to be the guy that's going to tell me, or I'm just going to listen to the Young Turks and they're going to tell me what I think, or I'm just going to listen to... On the internet, it's a lot more open like you're describing, but as far as what's on television airwaves, it is super centralized. But, but most people do not get their, their news from television. More Thank God. <laughs> Well, no, but, but, but I think, but even that, like, okay, and this is what, what I'm saying, where conspiratorial thinking fails in that it paints a broad brush that actually alleviates you from thinking more in a way. So if I say everything that the, you know, cable news says is right, right? I'll pick any channel, right? Mm-hmm. Now, clearly I'm wrong, but, but that alleviates me of thinking. But if I say everything they say is wrong, that is equally as unintelligent, allows me not to think. The truth sure. it's, you know, w- most of these programs, mm-hmm. the problem is, like I said, this is, this is media literacy. People have an inability to tell the difference between, like, uh, the 3 p.m. CNN newscast, where they're actually just doing hard news, and then Anderson Cooper or Chris Cuomo who do opinion uh, opinion shows that analyze news. So essentially yeah. they'll talk about a topic and then they'll give you their, their thoughts about it and they'll bring in a panel and they'll, they'll give their thoughts about it. That's not news. That's an opinion show about news. That's like saying, you know, you know, when they have a, you know, and, and sports center and like ESPN is the best corollary, right? Cause you have that one part, you have sports center where they just say, Oh, the Lakers won the game. And, LeBron James had 30 points and 
That's the news. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen A. Smith to come tell you his thoughts about the game. That's not news. <laughs> now that's opinion. But yeah, you think the opinion part is news? That's on you. That's yeah, not for sure. Oh, so, so now when they and if we understand right, if I turn on CNN, I know they're pretty anti-Trump. So I kind of I can use my brain to go. I get their angle, or I can turn on Fox News and I go, okay, I understand their angle. So it's not. So I understand that they're not. It's not like you go on Fox News. No, nine times out of ten times, they're going to tell you something that's de- d- deliberately false, unless it's on one of the opinion shows, which is just that. It's just an opinion. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I'm thankful that people like yourself are out there that understand the difference. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people that that don't. And uh, part of what triggered our our conversation and setting this up was you were wearing a They Live T-shirt. They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper, the uh, John Carpenter movie, one of my favorite movies ever. And I often feel like we're kind of living in uh, in a world like that, like that movie. It's not not too far off from real life. Well, but my problem with these um metaphors and thing is you know they live in particular it's not like um there's some mercurial idea what this movie is about (coughs) john carpenter will tell you this movie is a commentary about reagan era greed right it is very distinct but the problem is whether it's they live whether it's the matrix whether it's the fight club people will take a piece of art and commentary and place it on whatever philosophy is convenient for them. Um, and so the thing is, I think, I, I think to, to, to some degree, like some of the stuff is just inevitable, right? Like the way technology moves forward, right? With the way, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because science fiction, right? I'm a big sci-fi guy and all this stuff could predict certain things right? But it can never really predict social media in the exact way that it, that it is, right? Like the way it would change our minds or the way it would change the way we absorb information. And mm-hmm. the truth is most of this stuff is not they, it's us. Like it's, it's, we are the purveyors of our own demise in many ways. It's, it's, I think it's less, um, you know, I, I just go against the idea in many ways of, centralized power i think individuals actually have more individual power now to do things than they've ever had so i think there's there's certain examinations of like oh we're losing freedom of speech i'm like well what was freedom of speech do for you in 1942 right where could you go with your freedom of speech you could literally take your ass on the corner on the literal soapbox and talk some shit and four people would hear it and no one cared right yeah. But now you can make a YouTube video and 80 million people can see it. So, and back then it's like George Carlin was literally getting arrested for obscenity laws. Um, yeah, it was in the back of the police car with the Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce was literally getting arrested. NWA literally got arrested for talking about killing the cops. Two Live Crew literally got arrested for obscenity. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, you have situations like um, Nurgle from Behemoth is being taken to court for, uh, you know... Um, blasphemy, right? Blasphemy laws in Poland. 
and or like you know bands like Pussy Riot in Russia being thrown in jail for you know doing things against the church and and to me people conflating being kicked off Twitter because you use the n-word is the same shit and it's just not and I think that's an inability like I we gotta get out of this hyperbole chain we're very lucky that we live in this country where we have the First Amendment because many, many countries, most, I think, in this world don't have freedom of speech. I think free speech is uh, anomalous to the U.S. Well, unf- like, in the way in which our free speech, you know, our, our First Amendment is kind of interpreted. Um, but by the way, same thing with, with the Second Amendment and the way we interpret gun laws are, are pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and same thing with you know whether you're in, you know, uh, Western Europe. They don't they don't have all these things. There's a lot of things you can't say. Um, you know, um, anti-Semitic things in Germany. It's illegal. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and my and my my thoughts. Like I said, I, I used to be a free speech fundamentalist, and I've backed off on some of that because I equate speech now to like. Uh, it's powerful in a way it's never been, you know? And I think it's in, in some ways we, we don't, the, the fact that a, an idea is the most dangerous thing in the world. All right. Like we fought the cold war for however many years because of an idea that communism was so destructive, right? We got to go into Korea and we got to do this. We got to go into Vietnam because we are so worried about the spread of an idea and I think there's this lack of um, kind of understanding the through line between saying, on one hand, free speech is the most important thing. We got to keep everything free. But also, this one, I, these ideas are so dangerous, I have to do everything to stop them. Like that's those- why, yeah, that's why I personally think <clears throat> that all ideas, even stupid ones, should, should be allowed to be expressed because then you can compare a stupid idea to a good idea. And if there's, you know, that's, that's the value of debate. Well, but okay. But, and the, but here's the problem in this realm, we see how things, these things play out. What, because the the truth is in our, in most societies where you have some amount of freedom, it's a choice between one, if if, if on one end of the spectrum, you have 100% freedom, right? Everything Mm -hmm. goes. And on one hand, you have 100% domineering society where you can't do anything right it was, forget, what was it like singapore or something where if you like spit on the street they like whip you or something <laughs> there's yeah like, it's singapore yeah so there's 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 far into the spectrum where like duterte how he'll like you know execute drug dealers and things like that right yeah now we understand that for certain things for freedom we that we create a certain amount of danger right cars for example we we Understand that X amount of people every year are going to die or be injured for cars. But we know that it's such an advantage to society to, for people to be able to move around, to be able to move goods, to be able to go to work, to be able to just do shit, that we're willing to, get, to make, give up that one thing. But, but doesn't mean we don't make cars safer, create seatbelt laws, put in standards, right? And, and if you look now, about half as many people die in car crashes as they did 40 years ago. But people had to make that happen, right? For sure. Yeah, and, and you're, 
your underlying point, I, I totally agree with that freedom is dangerous and slavery. If you want ultimate safeties, then go to solitary confinement in the prison. Slavery is safe. Or not even, but, but, but slave, but save slavery, even the term uh, invokes the idea that there is another force putting you in slavery. You don't have to, you can just, you don't have to be enslaved. You could just not leave the house and you'll be safe, right? You can just never do shit. And like I said, you'll be safe. It doesn't even need to take someone to do it to you. Yeah. My point is just that it's the opposite of freedom. Yeah. Well, yeah. So there's always some trade-off with, with, with that in either way we go. Right. Um, so, but I, I believe with speech, speech is compelling. Speech is how you motivate people. Like, uh, the Rwandan genocide, for example, the way the Rwandan genocide happened was through the radio and propaganda was put out there to dehumanize a certain group of, of, of people. And those people were murdered in mass. And yeah, so ideas can change the world, but that's what I'm saying. So if, so we can have an ideal, which is, Freedom of speech is this wonderful thing and it's ugly and it's crazy, but we want to keep that. But if we don't actually recognize that taken to its logical extreme, like if someone goes, if so, if the most po- popular person on the internet just goes up there and says, Hey, if you drink bleach, it'll fucking make you do dick grow and make your pussy shine. Right. And just 1% of the people that listen to it, believe that and a hundred thousand people die or something. Is that cool are we cool with that well that's where where normally free speech is restricted is i I, i'm personally of the belief just i think you should be free to do whatever you want as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of others but but we need but what i'm saying is if you have a populace that's mm -hmm. not smart enough or informed enough to know don't listen to the guy telling you to swallow bleach and obviously this is a this is a you know, hypothetical situation. No, I like this hypothetical. Um, it's what I'm saying is we're confronting how an ideal runs into the practical problems of a real world. And that freedom of speech now is vastly, vastly fast. I mean, hundreds and thousands of times more powerful than it was a hundred years ago. And if we don't recognize that and at least go, Hey, really crazy things can happen. Then you're basically saying, you know what? People die. Fucking people die. And I don't give a shit. But you got to at least say that. Like, you can't, you can't have both things exist at the same time. You know, it, it, there is a part of it. There's a certain callousness built within that that we got to confront. You can't, you can't pretend to have both. And, and either one is a trade-off, right? Because if you're totally in the side of, I want nothing, no harm to ever come to people, then you're probably going to end up in a society that has very little freedom. But if you're 100% the idea that there's more than freedom, you're going to live in a really dangerous place. It's like, like you ever been fucking, uh, <laughs> like, uh, what was it, uh, New Orleans, like on Bourbon Street, like in a weird part of the night when it's like five in the morning and it's just absolute mayhem in the streets. You're like, yo, I feel like a riot could break out. I feel like I could get raped. I could get stabbed. I'm like, Sometimes you, I look at that shit. I'm like, yo, these motherfuckers got too much freedom down here. This shit is, this shit is too crazy for me. <laughs> I think it was uh, <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson said something 
to the effect of, I can't remember the exact quote, but something to the effect of, I'd rather be exposed to the problems attended to too much freedom than not enough of it. Yeah, listen, and, and, and in many ways, you know, I think, and I think that's the appeal of libertarianism, right? Is, you know, and I, in that, I think the people that tend to really gravitate towards that are usually pretty well adjusted. There are people that kind of have their head on their shoulders and they go, well, I kind of have it together. I can responsibly handle my freedoms. But the truth is everyone isn't like that, right? Like they don't put the warning labels on the back of shit for the smart people. <laughs> you know? Like there's, yeah. there's so many rules that exist <laughs> because like one person fucked up. <laughs> You yeah. know, one person, you know, or a lot of people ate the Tide Pods, right? It wasn't just one. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so it's it's <laughs> interesting thing, you know, but I I um I just think it's really important to understand we're just we're just in a very unique period of time. And I think we all have to be flexible uh with our ideas because some of them are like I said, if, if if they exist in a bubble and you can't actually apply it to actual reality, it turns out some of these things are just way more complex than that. We got to go in and go, okay, well, should I re-examine that? How, how do I think about this? Is 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 a principle just a principle if it can't ever be enacted in reality, right? Like 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 that's why some of these hypotheticals you almost have to talk about to their logical extreme, because like for example, like the idea of like there's a big debate not right now. I mean, it's, I guess it's been going on forever about the idea of the, the second amendment. What weapons does it give you the right to own? Right. Can you own a tank? Can you own a nuke? Can you own chemical weapons? Right. And there's some like logical ideas. Well, no, I mean, not that stuff, but some people believe you probably should be able to own that stuff. Cause if the idea is I'm trying to stop a tyrannical government, Right. So theoretically, I need the same weapons that the army has. And it's funny, like Biden got in trouble for this recently, saying like, well, you're supposed to give people nukes or something. And, they, and it was interpreted, Biden wants to nuke people, which was, I think, pretty bad faith. Um, he was just saying that if the people had the same capability as the army to actually physically fight the army, then, the, then people should, basically should have nukes. If, well, <clears throat> I, just for historical perspective, when when the country was founded, the the people that overthrew the government did have the same weapons as the military who I, occupied the land. Which is why the idea of it is actually absurd, right? It's a it's absurd when it comes to nukes. I think that might be a little extreme, but, but uh, we like he was even <laughs> saying like F 18s right? Like if who the fuck is gonna buy one of those? No, my, no, but the point is, is when you actually play it out, mm-hmm. when you, like, you have the ideal, which is we have arms so that we can fight against a tyrannical government. If you were literally, if people were literally fighting, who would you be fighting? You ain't fighting some pencil pusher bureaucrat. You're fighting the literal army and the literal Marines, right? Yeah, just if the shit got way... So far gone to that level, I think the military would fight on behalf of the people because they're the ones that swore an oath to uphold the Constitution Again. and literally fight for it. And who is the people? These things, revolutions never work out that way. There's one group of people over here. There's another group of people here and everyone thinks they're right. Oh, yeah. It's going to be it, it'll be a cold day in hell when the American people, at least, 
are on the same page enough to ever do something meaningful. No, but like what that. I'm but what I'm saying is actually the what I'm saying if you play it out logically, mm-hmm. it just it's not really a real thing. It's 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 this, and this is why the people, the main people that are obsessed with these ideas do like the Civil War reenactments and the Revolutionary War reenactments, and they go and they're militias and they do a lot of these like moves because it's in a way it's it's like you ever think about uh, doomsday preppers, right? People who are like re- ready for the shit to go down. Yeah. If you're ready for the end of the world and it doesn't happen while you're still alive, you're kind of disappointed. It's like why I get all these baked beans, <laughs> <laughs> man? Why why I got all this bottled water, right? You kind of like so. I think there's almost a kind of fantastical wish fulfillment idea that a everyone thinks uh the end of the world is going to happen while they're alive right and there's also this idea that i don't know people need some great fight to be a part of they need some great you know and i think some of that is biological right like that essentially humans have been at war some type of war as almost as long as we've been alive and we actually are not, our brains are not prepared for peace, right? Like that's the whole idea from the matrix of like how the, uh, agent Smith was saying they built a utopia and humans couldn't accept it. Right. And that's just like a commentary on that. We actually are not built for peace because if we don't have something to fight, we actually kind of have a tough time finding meaning. I think peace, peace and liberty are like the eternal uh, fights for humanity. And uh, <clears throat> something you said back there about, you know, people stacking up all the baked beans and all the supplies and stuff. Um, to me, with, with that kind of stuff, it just makes me think of like a fire extinguisher, just in case. It's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. The worst case scenario, if you like beans, that's a good problem to have. Very healthy. <laughs> all, right. Solid, all right, protein, fiber, it's got it all. Uh, but um, no, no, no. I listen. I I think in a in a practical element, like I always make this joke. I'm like, all all liberals, you better have you some conservative friends when the shit goes down because they're gonna have the AK. <laughs> have, you know, they're gonna have the bunker. They're gonna have them baked beans. You need you need to be ready for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but half joking, yeah. No, not even half joking. <laughs> like, yo, if, if the shit went down right now, I'd be woefully unprepared. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I could take a few people out with this Dean guitar. You know, I don't fuck some people up, but you can only <laughs> kill so many zombies with a flying V. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, you know, but um, <laughs> but but no, but I think you in in the abstract in the abstracts, you're right. But I think the type of mentality of the people that really hone into this stuff and it's increased a lot. And I think it's going to get a lot worse um, in the next few years is this idea of an impending revolution, right? I think, you know, and you saw that in many regards with what happened on January 6th, a lot of that, the the personality type. And the funny thing is it's actually a lot of these people are ex-military are, Mm -hmm people who served um, in law, law enforcement. Um, and, I, and I think it's this, again, this goes back, back to media diet. If you consume a radio show or a podcast or a YouTube show, that's telling you every day, 
it's coming. The storm is coming, right? You know, and you 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 saved up all them bullets one day. You gonna want them? You, you I save these bullets just to because they look cool, so I can dress up like Rambo on the weekends. Like I think so. It's this. Yeah, media diet's important. Yeah, but and by the way, when <clears> I, <throat> I I say this a lot, but you know, just right, right now is that we got to stop thinking the media is just three cable news networks. Like Joe Rogan has more influence over men between the ages of 24 and 45 than maybe any human being ever. Yeah, you, like, you might be right about that. Like, so when you say media, it's Joe Rogan. It's, you know, any, and that's just, I'm just, I'm giving one example, but it could be, you know, PewDiePie is media, right? He, how many kids watch him 10, 10 hours a day doing meme review or whatever. And it doesn't, and media doesn't necessarily mean it has to be politically geared, right? No, I mean, this conversation right now is considered media technically. Of course. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's just anything that has any kind of influence that people are tuning into that is somehow shaping their worldview innocuous or not. Um, and so, and, you know, and some of this has been proven, like you had a few elections in a row where like uh, they passed Citizens United or the, the Supreme Court. Right. And so the uh, corporations could give unlimited amounts to candidates. So Mitt Romney actually outraised Obama in 2012, lost the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hillary Clinton vastly outraised Donald Trump 2016 lost the election. And it's, it's basically proven that they take all this money, they raise all this money, essentially do TV ads. You know what happens with TV ads? They don't work anymore. We're like immune to them because A, way less people watch TV, less, less people watch TV with commercials. And we're a little more, they, they have an impact in, in smaller races and like, you know, localities and stuff with, you know, Senate races, things like that. They have sure. more impact because uh, there's just way less money. So if you get an advantage, any, you know, you don't, you need less votes to win all that. But generally what I'm saying is these, the CNNs of the world have way less of an impact than they did. And, and I think influence is way less decentralized and it is much more honed in around bubbles. Right. So once you're, and this is why they're saying like, um, you know, like a presidential approval now will only go above a certain threshold and will only go below down a certain threshold because basically everyone is so in their bubbles no matter what if it's their guy they're never going to say they're bad and if it's the person they don't like they're never going to say they're good no matter what they do yeah identity politics everybody's so married to dogmatically yeah uh, married to their political party well but yeah and politics have become identity yeah yeah which is fucking strange isn't it it's honestly, it's not strange. It's whack. It's like, <laughs> oh, Amen. If, if your politics, if your set of issues are the <clears throat> most important thing about your personality, you're a fucking boring person. I agree. hundred percent. And listen, I, and I think you get, and unfortunately I think because of the way things have been politicized, we're taking things that didn't used to be political and making them political. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so it's like, um, and and so people will take one. Maybe you're into like, you know, because it seems like seems like like a constant theme in in your your music and your lyrics is like, um, you know, peace, like political correctness, which is kind of 
we, we, it has gone under a bunch of different names, right? Social justice warriors. Now it's cancel culture or wokeness, whatever. Sure. Um, and you can be somewhat, and by the way, political correctness, wokeness is not popular. Like amongst Republicans, Democrats, it's, it's a very small group of people that are overly represented on Twitter, overly represented in print media, um, and commercials. Yeah. Well, just, just, if you actually to talk to people like this happened in, in, in New York, like, uh, the guy who just won the democratic mayoral mayoral, <laughs> uh, primary was like the most moderate dude. Like he was out there. He was like, People, he's like, black people do not want to defund the police. Stop saying that. <laughs> and he's going to, but he won. And like, you don't have to win. There's so many people that run. You can get like 20% of the vote and still like win a primary. But the point is, is that some, I, I do believe some of the problems are like overly stated because it's like one small group of people on one end of the stream get a giant foghorn and talk all that shit then the other end they respond to it and create it make it bigger and you're like well what's the actual reality if you go on the streets are people acting politically correct hell no not where i live i go out to the bar people acting a fool where are you at (laughs) i'm in long beach oh okay yeah i don't i just i but i but i think i the the internet is a is a funhouse mirror right it's not it distorts everything and so we don't, re- I think, we- and if you j- absorb one thing all the day and all you're hearing about is this one issue, right? Right now it's critical race theory, right? Everywhere I go, I fucking stub my toe every day. Like, damn, critical race theory. <laughs> <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everywhere, man. You know, but I'm like, but like, might, may, may it, might it be a problem? Maybe, but it's, but is but like I said, hyperbole, everything is the next thing that's going to destroy society. Right. Yeah, I think I think the biggest people that have a problem with that are people with kids in schools. Again, that seems, from what I can gather, that's where it seems to be a, a problem. But it, but but but, it, but again, these these are interesting issues because no one ever heard of the motherfucker six months ago. Now it's the most important thing in life, right? Like I don't have any kids. Crazy. No, but but what I'm saying is I don't have children. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what. Like I was, I was, I was listening to this one story about it in Connecticut or this, this or was it Connecticut or, or New York? Can't remember, but you know, these parents are flooding the PTA meetings. Right. And, yeah. just, and they have a very definitive idea of what they, what they think it is. And people can't even agree on what it is. Right. Like they can't even say, well, what, well, and then someone put out this, this, uh, this list of like, if it says these terms, then that means it's critical. So if you mention equity, if you mention uh, anti-racism, right, then that's mm-hmm. there. Like, then all of a sudden you're saying, well, at a certain point, if you if you can't mention all those, then maybe you just can't talk about racism, right? And I or you can't talk about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, and this is where like the different um, points of focus intersect and start to contradict each other. Right. Because if you're a free speech fundamentalist, right, these are just ideas. So isn't the whole thing about ideas is we put them into the sphere of, of public discourse and then we debate the ideas, right? right? The only way to beat a bad idea is with a good idea. I mean, 
you know, uh, hopefully, right. That's, that's, that's the, that's the idea that we hope to aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what we're seeing. I think from the right, we're seeing, we want these ideas eradicated, right. Which is creating laws. Which is not very free speech. Exactly. That's, that's, that's exactly. Important. And by the way, I'm not saying I agree with the tenets of critical race theory that I, that I've known, but, and I'm, so I'm like surprised where I see it being implemented in certain maybe corporate uh, environments or maybe some educational environments. But the truth is, if you go around this country, you go somewhere down south, they have a very particular way. They teach history, right? That is unique to their, they'll say, oh, well, you know, the Civil War is about states' rights. They won't mention slavery because they're trying to tell their story, right? They're trying to, Get and I think it's a bunch of people on the extremes fighting over who gets to indoctrinate who with what, right? Everyone just wants to get their ideas in. And I think you can go whether it's religion, right? Getting a group, uh, group of young children and telling them what they need. To, you think they should believe about a particular religion? Getting them to believe about hit about science, right? Like some of these schools in Texas, they want us to go. Hey, we want intelligent design right next to evolution, right? So the idea that schools are a battleground to implement history, science, values, that's, that's as American as apple pie. It's just a new frontier. <laughs> well, the, uh, the Department of Education didn't exist on- until only a handful of decades ago. <clears throat> Before that, school was, was not uh, dictated by the federal government or the state. Yeah, people got an education and they were well-rounded in all kinds of things. And it wasn't just state sanctioned uh, education. Well, I, but, but, I, but again, you say that, but I don't know that was I at every school around the country and I could say what the standards were and what the, what were the reading levels? What were the math? I don't know. So I, I, what I try and do is never talk about things I don't know about and not jump to conclusions. Cause I don't really know. It's a I'll, smart way to be. Yeah, this is one subject. I say, I'll, I'll talk about the little bit, a little bit I know, but I don't have children. I did go to school. <laughs> I learned a little bit about a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah. I know. The, thing, the thing that I wish was taught in school more that has uh, the root of the word of the term critical race theory in it is critical thinking. I wish that was taught in school. Well, it's... I always, I always said it's... Uh, funny about schools is essentially, you know, it was designed to basically get people to get a job in the industrial age. You know, it's, it's, you know, like that, that whole George Carlin thing about just smart enough to run the machines, you know, but it's like, I never had a class that taught me about credit. Right. No, never had a class that was like, Hey, banks work, (laughs) banks work, how to start your own business. Um, you know, all, all kinds of things that are actually applicable. And, um, you know, it's because the truth is, it's, I would say like this, uh, there's this thing going on right now where they don't, there's a worker shortage, right? We don't have enough workers for the jobs. Um, and when all these jobs are lower paying jobs, uh, service, things like that. And, because the, the truth of the economy is it's a game of musical chairs, 
right? It is designed that someone has to pump the gas. Someone has to clean the floors. Someone has to throw out the garbage, right? If everyone, if everyone went and got a doctorate and went to MIT, then there would be no one to be a cashier at McDonald's. But the truth is, it's so that there's a fundamental lack of honesty about the way the system is that, no, no, someone has to do these jobs. And if right now we have more capital in the system because of stimulus and, uh, you know, things like that. And a lot of people just through the pandemic almost kind of re-examined their lives and were like, oh, I, I don't want to go to work back at Applebee's, right? People are kind of re-examining how they, how they want to exist in their, in their lives. Sure. But we need to get to a certain amount of honesty about that to say, all right, we actually do need people to work at McDonald's. We do need people to do these jobs and we should actually value them and treat them with respect and dignity. And you know what I'm saying? Like there's a, like the, I was, have you seen some of these signs? They're like, uh, McDonald's is closed. We, no one wants to work anymore. Like they're going to shame somebody. Like they actually think someone's going to see that. And you know what? You know what? I feel bad about myself. (laughs) You can't shame someone in the work at McDonald's. Like, you don't question someone's work ethic, <laughs> and that's going to make someone work there. <laughs> yeah, this is a, such a crazy time where so many people are not willing to go to work because they're getting unemployment money. And <clears throat> it's, it's so wild that, like, a, a quarter of the dollars in existence were printed in the last, like, year and a half. No, they weren't. Insane. No, they weren't. You don't think so? What they print? This is a number in a bank account on a screen. In the right. They don't want to have real cash anymore. They ain't print that shit. Right. Yeah, not physically print, but you understand. Well, listen, I'm of the mind that money isn't really real, okay? It's, 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 it's funny it's, money, monopoly money. Yeah, but, uh, but past a certain point, listen, all, all money represents is... Time and work. It's a and energy. No, it's a symbol for goods and services, right? So at the end of the day, I think it's energy is what money is. It's a store of your energy and time. Well, no, but, but it also, it also stands for, you know, like I want to buy that guitar and it's worth these, you know, this means, well, but it, but my point is it's only worth something because we believe it's worth something. We have, yeah. Right. We have a trust in the idea that when I take that hundred dollars you give me, I could take that down to the store and buy some groceries or I can get a beer or whatever with that, with, with that, with that money. Mm-hmm. But like, I remember that, that this guy, um, was named Jacques Fresco, that dude, the, uh, yeah. you know, he, just, you know cool. like he said about the, the depression, he goes, you know, the stock market crashed, but he goes the same amount of stuff was in the store. The same amount of people, like nothing physically changed. It was just a crisis of confidence. Mm-hmm. And, and so the whole, so, so why do you have a depression when nothing physically changed? There wasn't less bread in the store. There wasn't less gold um, in the, you know, to be mined. It wasn't less oil. It was the resources didn't change. So it's this idea about having something that is more resource oriented. But the problem is our, our system is set up. Like I said, it's set up a, that someone has to lose, right? Someone has to do the shitty jobs. So we got to make sure we, and we actually have to, in our system, we have to make sure 
that the bottom is so shitty that it'll scare you so much that you will take the shitty job for no money to do anything. We have to make sure that it's like, it's just bad enough and that you will hate being poor will suck so much. You'll want to succeed, which part of that I get, right? Like you want to motivate people to like innovate and do cool things and do better. Right. So I, I, I get some of that. Um, but it also ha- they're always in a market system capitalism. It's, it's profit-based. So there always has to be something left over. So if I have a corporation and my goal is to maximize profit for my shareholders, I need to create that gap between what I'm spending and what I'm making. And so I'm going to figure out any way to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. So that is inherently inefficient at some point because it's going to go, well, I need, and that's why you have, was it like uh, Steve Ballmer who owns the Clippers? He was, he's a Microsoft billionaire like he his net worth increased by 20 billion dollars in a year i don't think he did shit (laughs) he just you know you know did he why does he get you know what i'm saying like it's it's but that's what that's the way the mark the the system is is kind of set up um and so i think when you have a system like that it's just inherently going to have problems that whether that's inequality or you know these situations where let's say technology gets so good where everything's automated, right? And we literally don't need anyone to work at McDonald's. We literally don't need anyone to drive trucks. We literally don't need anyone to drive Uber. And you have all these people, but the the economy is creating wealth and it's creating productivity, but we don't physically need people to do all that shit. We're not prepared for a um, an abundance reality. We're pre- we've lived in it with uh, scarcity, most of most of 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 most of time so we're not really prepared mentally for that yeah and it depends how you look at it because you could easily argue that today we live in a time of abundance like we're fucking so lucky to live when and where we do oh i'm with you i'm with yeah we're spoiled as fuck to be able to communicate right now you're in california i'm in hawaii you're in hawaii yeah I thought you were in, in Denver. Uh, the band's from Denver. I live there, but my girlfriend lives in Hawaii. And when pandemic started, she was like, hey, all your tours are canceled. Do you want to come here for the winter? And I was like, fuck, yeah. Damn. <laughs> so, I mean, like we're, we're talking, though, from thousands of miles away from each other. You know, we have air conditioning. You have cool artwork on your wall. I do. We have microphones. We have refrigeration. We eat better than most kings, emperors, and czars throughout all of history. And, and so many people find, uh, you know, we, we just discussed a bunch of heavy stuff, but a lot of people are are just stuck in like this really ungrateful state where they can't see any of the good that we have. And dude, even the poorest people here in this country are still living way better than rich people, uh, uh, you know, two, a thousand years ago. Yeah. In, In many ways, not, not in all ways, but. You know, we're, we're super lucky, spoiled to live when and where we do. Listen, I, every day, you know, I've struggled most of my life just to make a living doing music. You know, I'm sure you can relate. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having some success in the last few years, you know, just literally like, oh, I got a roof over my head. Check. I'm doing pretty good. Oh, did I eat today? Yes, I did. Check. Okay. Got that. Do I have a wonderful girlfriend? Yes, I do. Do I have good friends and fam. Like I look at all, I'm, I try and take 
moments to just be grateful for just the very basic things that I have. Do I have all my limbs? Do I, you know, do I don't have cancer? You know, all these things that we take for granted. Do I have my eyesight? Uh, that 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 we take for take for granted, and yeah, I, I was I did just did this um, thing on my last podcast just about focus, right? You are the things you focus on, right? So if you only focus on, I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't, or or like in a political social context of, oh well, this bad thing is happening there. There's a every day I'm reading about the war that's happening. 5,000 miles away that literally, if I never looked it up, would never, ever affect me. And it's like the, the downside of too much information or too much, like, they say, like, if you were to look at a graph between people being worried about crime and, like, their kids being kidnapped or something and the actual rates of it happening, it's yeah. like there's way less more crime, there's way less violent crime, way less kidnappings and murders and all that shit, but people's worry about it has skyrocketed, but only because 24 hour news cycle. And if some, so if you're a parent, right. And you're in Ohio and some kid gets kidnapped in California. Now you're hearing, or I call it the kid in the well stories, right? Like yep. now that's global news, but for you, your monkey brain can only comprehend all news is local. Yeah. It's uh Reminds me of Jim Morrison. He said, whoever controls the media controls the mind. And, and unfortunately, that's, that's still true. But I love your idea of being grateful for the things that we have, because I really believe, and I've thought this for a long, long time, that gratitude equates to happiness. I think the more grateful you are, the, the more happy you're going to be. The more ungrateful you are, you're going to be a more miserable person because you're constantly going to be in despair and comparing yourself to others who have more. That's not a great mindset to have. Yeah. And I've, I've often thought about, cause to me, the uh, gratitude is like a practice, right? It's not necessarily. It like is. Yeah. Being it's like actually taking a moment and I do it like a mantra. Um, but so sometimes I would get confused. I go, is it more important to feel grateful when things are going bad or is it more important to be grateful when things are going good? Because I think sometimes, and I actually th think it's both because when things They're are both important. Yeah. Because when it's going bad, you kind of go, okay, this terrible thing. Like I've had, I had a rough year. Like both my parents passed away. I had, oh you know, man, I'm sorry. I, I appreciate it. A lot of, you know, tough things with, with the band and just, just a lot of just, just new life stresses in, you know, big monumental ways. And but then you have to go, okay, all this stuff is rough, but what do I have? Right. But then sometimes things are going great. You also, I think sometimes you get too comfortable and you don't actually go, Hey, you know, let me take a second here, smell the roads and go, things are going really great for me. And I'm really lucky. Cause I know if you just wait long enough, something bad's going to happen. Right. If you just like, you ever have those good times when you're like, man, things are going too good. And you're like, you're like smelling around the corner for, <laughs> for something bad. to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you kind of sense that on tour. That's, that's why we all knock on wood, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> dude, it's, it's, I don't know, man. It's, 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 it's interesting, you know, but I, you know, like I said, I, for me, just my number one priority just in, in general is like finding some 
peace or serenity or zen, right? And kind of, you know, like I feel like with the pandemic, I just think a lot of people just kind of went down these rabbit holes and they're still not back yet because and they're, they're hyped up about whatever they're hyped up about. And it's like, now that's their life. Whatever it is, whatever hole they kind of went down, they, and they come back now, they're like, they're hyped up all the time. Oh, let me tell you about this. Let me, oh, you know what? Can we not? Can we just, can we just woosah? Can we come and woosah it for a minute? <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, like, I'll go and have dinner with friends or something, and <clears throat> there, there's times where, like, we don't talk about anything COVID-y or pandemic-y at all because, I mean, what, what else is there to say? You know, it's friends that have already discussed this stuff with, like, doesn't need to be the thing to talk about all the time, every day. No, um, I've, I've noticed I can't watch any, like, show or movie that's about the pandemic. Like, I just don't, like, I, it's like, I lived through it. I don't need to relive it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, your, your, your mission to, to seek serenity and, and peace, I, I think is, uh, you know, a good way to get there is through stoicism, stoic mindset and, and gratefulness, gratitude. Yeah. Well, it's also, but it's also like, I think, you know, there's like two, two sides of the coin, right. Of being, of believing, I think, and you're, you're probably agree with me on this is that at some point in your life, you felt like you had like a civic duty to some degree to be informed. Right. So you'd like consume news and read books and kind of like, inform your worldview. But I think there's like a, a past a certain point where it becomes unhealthy, where you're on information overload, or just like, there's so much coming at you that it becomes actually difficult to process things. And it can increase your, uh, your anxiety. It can make you just put it like, if you're really tuned into these external things and then doing that thing where you just take the social media off your phone, you say, you know, what? I'm not going to, I'm actually not going to watch the news. I'm good. I'm going to, you know, just go into, go to realize you, oh, if you just turn off the noise, it actually, was that helping me? That's a big all- reason I like to go hiking. Yeah. You get rid of a car noise, you get rid of uh, any uh, external shit going on. You just <laughs> detach, unplug for a minute. Yeah, I mean, we, we all we, we all have to have to have to do that. But I mean, like, I periods where I just wasn't on social media for X amount of time, and it was like, it's it's fascinating how your brain kind of starts to recalibrate itself, and you're just there is that FOMO, right? Like, I'm a big NBA fan, so NBA Twitter is a big is one of my one of my favorite things. Oh, there's a game on, but in general, it's just you start to. I don't know. I started thinking about deeper things. I started, uh, I don't know. I like, you forget how, as a cre- creative person, how boredom can be a great, like, oh, like you start thinking of things in, in, in different ways. And so even, even lately I have this difficult relationship where on one hand, as a human being, it would be in my best interest to just get off all social media and never be on it. But mm-hmm. as someone who's, Income relies on you being present, doing videos, just just showing your face and promoting things. You're like, I kind of have to be, and that's a 
that's a tough space because I it's like now, especially like Bad Wolves, we have a new record coming out and all this stuff's gonna happen. And I know I'm have to be like on top of it. And it's like and to some degree, I wish I was the type of person who just naturally gravitated to wanting to be posting and doing this, but it's it certain times it becomes a bit of a chore, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally feel that. I mean, I was out of town for a few weeks and I was not on my social media very much. And when I came back on there and looked at stuff, I was like, ah, like, all right, I I get it. Like you said, you got to kind of be on there and be present. Um, But a huge part of me really enjoyed not being on it much for for three weeks. Yeah, it it was nice. Um, Yeah, it's unfortunate that we have that double-edged sword of like, yeah, in in some ways, social media can really suck. In some ways, it can be really good. I mean, I keep in touch with some people that I wouldn't otherwise if it wasn't for that. (laughs) And and it's a way that I also learn things, you know? Um, I don't often watch like TV or, or movies very much. I do watch a lot of documentaries when I'm going to throw on television. Um, but social media has been useful for me in that way. And like you were talking about earlier with media diet, you got to be careful with what you're consuming that goes for not just your body, but your mind. And, uh, it, it is, it is cool the way, at least personally, I've set up my own social media stuff. The, the, uh, any, any information I get about the outside world, it's a, I I think a, a healthy blend of, things that they don't talk about on news, things that are good stories, things that are interesting, um, that are not just all fear mongering, uh, bullshit, trying to sell you some Tide Pods. <laughs> sell you, sell you something. Um, <laughs> actually, so it's funny. We, we kind of went on this tangent, uh, good tangent but you know all stuff i knowing what i know about your your lyrics and i know how much you care about this stuff so i knew we would we would kind of get on these these topics either way but i actually wanted to ask you some music related questions if that's okay yeah yeah of course (laughs) um havoc kind of came out at a time when i guess at the time what was it called i think it was called rethrash was that yeah a lot of people were calling it that um during this like this this period of time and listen there's even something god forbid experienced um in that we like we did this tour we did the anthrax among the living reunion tour in 2008 oh no six i was still on six jesus and i remember some of the shows you we would see like 15 year old kids who looked they had the vest they had the white shoes like <laughs> you could definitely tell there was this new generation of young kids who really identified with like a, a very particular type of thrash metal kind of vision right and it's very much in, in line with suicidal tendencies and a very particular area era of, of anthrax and, and th- things like that um do you think that like what is what is about thrash where a new group of kids can come around to it, but in a way they're almost, it's almost frozen in time, even though it's this, it's a new group of kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, like what, what, what do you think was at least going on with that era with like bands of you guys and, and municipal waste and uh Warbringer is another one. 
Um, well, when I started the band, there were not really many other bands I could find that were doing like a thrash quote unquote kind of sound. And, uh, I started the band and wanted to make this kind of music because I love thrash and I, I didn't hear other bands playing the kind of music that I liked. Even the bands that I fell in love with for their thrashy, fast, heavy stuff, they didn't sound like that anymore. So I was like, somebody's got to make this music. And I started Havoc kind of for that reason, because I wasn't hearing a lot of bands put out the kind of music that I liked to listen to. And uh, I started the band when I was 15 in high school with another kid that played drums there. We both knew a bunch of Metallica songs, jammed and uh, eventually started writing our own stuff. And I was like, hey, writing my own stuff, that was fun. I should do that more. And that kind of took off from there. Um, I mean, but did, did you, did you know, was it a situation where you guys were coming out there doing shows and it was a whole new group of young people getting into it? Or was it, were you appealing to like the old school fans who were like waiting for a kind of revival? Uh, no, mainly we were just like playing. I'm sure you can relate to this largely. Uh, we were mainly just playing to satisfy ourselves. Yeah. To be able to record it and listen back to it and be like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then playing it live was even more fun because, you know, there was people that were banging their head and like moshing. We felt like, you know, as a teenager watching Metallica live shit binge and purge. And, and that was one of the huge catalysts for me. I was like, holy shit, that looks like so much fun. I need to learn how to do that. <laughs> and, and so when you go out and play live and there's people moshing and head banging and stage diving and stuff. It's super exciting. And uh, yeah, we weren't really trying to appeal to like old guys that were there in the early days of man, I saw Cliff Burton with Dave Mustaine on stage with Hetfield. We weren't like trying to appeal to those people. We were just doing things that satisfied our own um, artistic interest. Yeah. No, yeah, it's 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 fascinating for me because, like you, those are my roots, and that was like the template I kind of everything filtered out of. Uh, but with God forbid, we were such a amalgamum of different influences, be it Swedish death metal or math metal or fucking metalcore, all all, all these things. Do you ever get stifled by? limitations because i think you know when i was getting into metal all those bands were that that was when they were doing their they were go, everyone was going hard rock right you had uh, anthrax with sound of white noise metallica black album countdown to extinction mm-hmm. um is is it a genre that you feel comfortable like staying within certain bounds or are you like wanting to expand and do more with the genre well i think our musical in- influences become more and more broad as the years go by. And I think a lot of that stuff gets mixed into this pot that we call havoc music. But like, I'm a huge fan of funk music. I listen to a shitload of funk and R and B and soul music, um, classical music, jazz, punk rock, death metal, uh, gypsy jazz, flamenco guitar. Reese listens to a lot of country and uh bluegrass stuff i mean that all that stuff kind of 
slips into our sound under the radar. I think a lot of people that listen to Havoc and like Havoc probably would dig a lot of funk and bluegrass and country and shit, but in classical music and jazz, but they just don't know that they are fans of that because we put it all in this cauldron and stirred around and call it thrash metal. But it, it, it to a trained ear, you, you can definitely go into our songs and pick out, Oh, there's the funky part. Oh, there's the bluegrass part. No, I listen. And I think that's why for me, conformist side was like a breakthrough record because it, it expanded on that stuff, especially, you know, when, when Nick was playing bass, like it was just, it really stood out that it was different. They're like, Oh, we're not just doing this thing that has already existed, but our version of it, we're really going to uh, get out there. That That's something I definitely n- noticed. And was like, this is fucking cool that it, that is, especially people forget the nineties funk metal was, was happening. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing that stuck out to me about that record as well was it seemed like your personality as a vocalist and lyricist was coming out. It felt Mustaine-esque, not that you were, you sounded like him or that you were parroting his ideas, but it was that he was a personality and he had things to say that felt important that he really cared about. And it was like, and I was like, yes, like this is what we need. And And I'd say like me as a fan, like I want, out of you, I want more of that. Like, be the most brash and outward version of yourself and speak, like, whatever you think about something, go, like, double down on it and be in more attitude, more fucking uh, just like, yo, this is, this is who I am. Because I think that's what the genre lacks is, like, those big personalities, right? Yeah, you know, a lot of that just stemmed from the ideas that I have and largely the way I think was uh, assisted by people like George Carlin. You know, when I got into him, I was a young teenager. I was like a little kid in high school, 13, 14, 15 years old, listening to Carlin. And that guy blew my mind wide open to all kinds of things about how the world works. And, uh, you know, right around like when our third record was being made, I was reading a lot of books and uh, just have all of these ideas in my brain, but I was, I I wanted to get them out of my brain and into songs because I figured like there's a lot of bands already singing about death and war and Satan and whatever. And I don't really like, that's not what I want to be saying and shouting about. I don't really, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be another one of those. I'd rather just get the ideas that are in my head out. And, and conformicide was probably the biggest, um, at the time, was probably the biggest foot down statement that I had made about my personal beliefs and my ideas put into song forms. So V continues with that. And I'm sure our next record will, will have a lot more of that as well. But, uh, I just can't find it in myself to sing songs about the devil or shit like that. You know, (laughs) there's so many other interesting things to talk about. Well, yeah, I mean, but I think with a particular kind of heavy metal, sometimes it lacks a depth, right? So I think the more you can kind of lend to that, it just makes the band stick out even more. And it's like, you know, because it's got to be more than just 
sick riffs, right? It's got to be, you know, but it, and it just, I just think it's cool because it, it gives Havoc something else that's special, you know, whether yeah. people agree with that or not, gives a fuck. It's like, yo, this is what we do, you know? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I agree. There, there's a lot of bands that have really cool music and then lyrically, um, their stuff doesn't, and I'm not knocking them, the, the lyrics, like, they, there are cool songs and fun songs, but a lot of bands, their lyrics don't, like, really say anything. They don't hold, like, an important message. Sometimes they'll tell a story or have a tongue-in-cheek kind of a joke theme to it or whatever, or partying or things like that, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need those kinds of songs. You don't hate partying, do you, bro? All right. No, we need those kinds of songs. Okay. <laughs> but but that's not the kind of thing I wanted to do. And I think it's really cool that people, some people pick up on, on the fact that Havoc is uh, saying something more than, than the average <laughs> metal band. Okay, so I got an idea. You used to do a cover song, right? Of Guns N' Roses Get In The Ring. Right. And you're like, all right, motherfucker. And so start calling out like individual people on like Twitter or like Instagram. All right. Uh, <laughs> loves Morbid Angel 285. Fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> you fucking pussy ass. <laughs> um, I'll let you sing that one. Yeah, I'll do like <laughs> hip hop style. Like I'll come with some, some raps. Actually, I'm joking. That is like the worst <laughs> song ever. And it's actually hilarious. He's just like. He's like, he's like, says and such from Kerrang magazine. I'll kick your pussy ass. I'm like, really, really, Axel. Like that is, I think that's peak petty. Like no one better than that track ever. <laughs> what what a psycho! Like that, that's uh, serious insecurity revealed through a song. Well, it shows though. Like uh, you know, I've gotten more. I've gotten attacked more online by individuals in the past six months that I have like the entire time on the internet, like personally, you know, and it's, it kind of just, I think reveals the fact that none of us are really above it. Like we all feel it, right? Like if someone says something really terrible about you, but we're all, a lot of the many artists and people that are the most talented people are also some of the most sensitive people as, as, as well. He just had the inability to, <laughs> brush it off and he was just leaning into <laughs> you know I mean Axel Rose is kind of I think he's one of one in terms of his ability to exacerbate what it the idea of what it means to be a rock star <laughs> yeah yeah at least during Absolutely. that at least during that time period where he's the, the peak of all that hence Chinese democracy taking 13 years to be completed yeah and there was like 40 <laughs> musicians on that record crazy <laughs> listen brother i think i'm pretty good right now i got you know i'm sweating in this room you look good i'm trying listen baby i don't know i'm a little look a little tired <laughs> no but i'm all out of coffee and that that means uh it's time to 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 replenish with was there anything else you wanted to ask me yeah one question before sure. we wrap it if you could leave one message to all future generations of people what would you want to tell them Oh, you you asked me this. Um, damn, I, you know what's funny is I thought of something and now I fucking can't. Re- Let me see if I can I, I can remember it. Uh, probably don't listen to me. Uh, <laughs> oh shit! 
damn, I had I fucking had something for this, and now I can't remember what it was. It was, it was something pretty pr- pr- pretty good. Um, you know, if you can't think of it right now, and you think of it later, you could do a voice memo, and we can yes. add it on to the end. Yes. We're going to be. I'm going to do something. <laughs> then it'll be a proper message to the future. No, I mean, I'm I'm definitely the type of person that I don't know I. I never think I have the fucking answers. I'll tell you that. I'm always someone who's like, listen, I have an opinion about shit, but probably don't listen to me. Listen to someone way smarter than me. <laughs> but let me think about it, and I'll and I will, I will. You know, usually I'm, I'm pretty good off the cuff, but this is like future generations, bro. It's loaded. I need to it's come, loaded question. I need to come correct with this. All right. Um, you know, what is that? I'm on drugs, or I dig music. <laughs> No, almost famous? No, you don't remember? Oh shit. Dude, you're gonna hate me. I've never seen that movie. Dude, it's the best. It's the best. best. It's so listen, it is. I mean, as far as just it's like it's basically a band on tour. You know, there's supposed to be some amalgamum of like Led Zeppelin and or you know, kind of American version of, of Led Zeppelin, but just on the road in the 70s. Like what you wish. What you you think it would be like to be in a band that situation? It's just it's it's just it's it's the best. Isn't that kind of like a, a kind of a documentary or a biopic on a writer for Rolling Stone or something? Yeah, um, what's his name? Uh, Cameron Crowe, the director, writer who also did singles and what does he do? He didn't do High Fidelity. It's something else with um, John Cusack, but. Uh, yeah, I need to see that movie. But I've uh, wanted to see it for a long time. He wrote for Rolling Stone when he was a teenager. So it's based on his actual experience, uh, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> but it has, the music is amazing. All the actors are amazing. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have a film that came out, I think that came out in 97. You hope that, you know, because I saw it, obviously, when I was when it came out and you're at a very formative age. So you have a certain kind of autobiographical attachment to certain pieces of work. And you hope that it translates 20 years later. I think it will. I think it has aged really well, but sometimes certain films, you almost, you don't see the original thing or you don't hear the original record, but then you see the work that it inspired. And so it somehow sure. might not feel as fresh, but with that, I'm trying to think like probably it's the only other something that's in the similar vibe, even though it's about a different thing is like uh, dazed and confused, like similar time, but obviously that's like a high school kind of whatever movie, but it's like, it's a vibe. And I think you'll, I think you'll like it. It's, oh, it's yeah. like, it's rock and roll shit, man. It's, it's as a guy that spent a lot of his life on the road out there live, living it. I think you'll, it'll definitely make you appreciate a certain, certain period of time that we missed but we at least we, we get a little a little reverberation of it. So that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Love it. I'll check it out. <clears throat> well, Doc, thanks a lot for doing this, man. I'm really stoked that we could talk and I hope we can do it again someday. Yes. Likewise. Uh I'm a huge fan. Uh glad you're doing the podcast thing and out there expressing yourself. And I'm I'm thankful that you that you reached out to me. And it's just, you know, it's fun to talk with uh smart, talented uh 
talented people and and you know hopefully we get to see each other out and out there I get to see you guys rock out i went to that show with kill switch and uh anthrax anthrax you guys fucking killed it you sounded so good oh, um, thanks and I'm, I'm excited to see some of these new songs live and just, just everything man all all power and and luck and fortune and fame to you brother oh well, yeah and likewise dude I, I really appreciate you taking the time i i enjoy your podcast by the way i've listened to a handful of them and uh keep up the good work Thank you, brother. Likewise. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. There it is, folks. Right here, I'm going to play you the voice recording that Doc had sent me after this interview. This is his words of wisdom to the future. Take a listen. So David asked me for my advice for future generations. This took a little bit for me to actually think about and go, what what do I want to pass forward without sounding too presumptuous or uh, professorial. So I, I would say my advice would be remember that you can't really fix the world. And I, I think sometimes we get wrapped up in some giant big issue. And it's not that you can't have an impact, but it's rare that one person can solve a problem. So with that, I would focus on small kindnesses and small impacts that, like I said, it's when I say small, I just mean things that are directly in your reach and help people you can help that are around you, help uh, improve your your environment that you're in instead of trying to fix the problem, fix the world. Fix yourself, and you will see, I think, more of an impact, and you'll be a healthier, happier person. And what I would do is keep in mind that life is short, and don't have regrets. Think about what you actually want to do. And do that. Don't wait. I lost both my parents in the past year. And I realized you can make all the plans in the world you want. But life does not care about your plans. So do the things you want while you're still here. And that's all I have. Good luck. There's a great message in there. And there's two things I'd like to say about what Doc said. Now, I would have said this stuff to him in the conversation if it would have happened then, but I got it afterwards, so I'm going to say my thoughts on it here. Number one, I do completely agree with his Michael Jackson man in the mirror type of mentality. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change. Changing yourself, you change the world. I believe that's also in a Gojira song, and it's completely true. Make an effort to make an impact on the things that are in your immediate surrounding. I think that's very wise words. The other thing I wanted to mention about his advice to future generations here is this. There's one thing in there that I didn't totally agree with. He said that, you know, you're only one person. So don't try to change the whole world. You can't. And to that, I would say, keep in mind... Mahatma Gandhi was one man. Martin Luther King was one man. Adolf Hitler was one man. Alexander the Great was one man. Mao Zedong was one man. 
Joseph Stalin was one man. George Carlin was one man. Benjamin Franklin was one man. So I definitely agree with what Doc was saying about changing your immediate environment. I couldn't agree more. But I don't necessarily agree with the argument that you're only one person, so what big of a difference can you make? If you look at history, one person, just one person, can do something that sends ripples around the world that last for centuries. Never forget that, my friends. Like I said, I had a great time chatting with Doc. I hope that we can do it again sometime in the future. Very appreciative that he was down to do a swap cast between Riffs or Die and the X-Man podcast. Check out his podcast sometime. He's got a lot of great interviews with amazing musicians and producers, engineers, managers, and all that kind of stuff related to the heavy music world. That's it from me for today. Shoot over your emails, any questions or comments, any feedback is most welcome. It's podcast at riffsordie.com. Don't forget to hit patreon.com slash riffsordie if you want to sign up. As a subscriber, you'll have access to Zoom Hangouts, intimate conversations that we have once a month. The next one's happening on July 31st. And you'll also get discounts for the web store, riffsordie.com. Take care of yourselves and each other, everybody. Every little tiny bit of goodness adds up. So go out there and try to leave the world a little nicer than the way you found it. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.